Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. In the sanctuary, you can open your Bibles to the book of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. If you did not bring a Bible, it's okay because we've got Bibles for you underneath the chairs in front of you, so you can grab one of those, open it to page 493. It's where we find our passage this morning. Well, they called him Unconditional Surrender Grant. I'm referring to Ulysses Grant, the 18th President of the United States, the uh, famed general leader of the North Army during the Civil War. Uh, yes, you're going to be hearing lots of Ulysses Grant illustrations from me because I'm reading a biography of the man, and so I think this is the second one that I am in using, but a fascinating story, fascinating character, unconditional surrender grant. The reason that he got that nickname was not because he was a man who surrendered to the enemy, but instead he got that nickname because he was a man who demanded unconditional surrender of his enemies. He approached his enemies with no compromise. We might say he was ruthless in the way he dealt with the enemy. Now, we don't often like ruthless people, people who are not willing to compromise, but, but here's the thing, friends. Aside from Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses Grant probably did more than anybody else to free African Americans from slavery in our nation's history. And one of the reasons he was able to accomplish that great accomplishment is because he was ruthless with the enemy. Now, as Christians, we're not called to be ruthless with people, whether they are our friends or our enemy, but we are called to be ruthless with our real enemy. And our real enemy is the sin that resides in the heart of each and every one of us. As we deal with sin, we are to be ruthless. We are to accept no compromise. We are to demand unconditional surrender from our sinful impulses. And one of the reasons that this is so important for us to consider is because of the difference between those who deal ruthlessly with sin and those who don't deal with sin at all is the difference between heaven and hell the difference between going to heaven and going to hell. And so we we are going to be thinking about this topic this morning of hell, a very unpopular topic, one that is a little bit uncomfortable to talk about, but it might surprise you to know that no one talked about hell more than Jesus Himself. And the passage we are about to look at is one of those passages where Jesus addresses the issue of hell hell. Mark 9, 42 through 50, we're just kind of moving our way through the gospel of Mark, taking it one passage at a time. And so, if you are able to stand, why don't you do that now and let me read these verses to you and hear what the Lord has to say to us about this topic. Okay, my slides are not advancing, so there we go. Thank you, Dustin. Uh, 
All right, Mark 9, verse 42, Jesus says this, "'Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell.'" to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would give us eyes to see, give us soft hearts, Help us to understand this passage. Bless our souls as Your Word goes forth now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I was away at a conference last uh, weekend, so missed you all. And uh, thanks to Pastor Brian for bringing the Word to us. It's been a couple weeks since we've been into Mark. Let me just kind of remind you where we've been. The the theme of Mark, as I've been kind of repeating Sunday after Sunday, is that uh, Mark is telling us who Jesus is, very simply, and in addition to that, what Jesus came to do. So, Mark wants us to know these two things, who Jesus is, what He came to do, His identity and His mission. That's kind of the primary theme of the book of Mark, but there is a sub-theme to the book of Mark, which is discipleship. And just here in the last several sermons, we've been considering this topic of discipleship in terms of what Jesus has been saying to us. He's been commanding us to do things like take up your cross and follow Him. And He's been exhorting us to deny ourselves for His sake. And then two Sundays ago, we saw this emphasis on humility. These are all aspects of being a disciple of Jesus, carrying the cross, denying ourselves, adopting a posture of humility. And so now we get to this passage, which is telling us about the importance of dealing ruthlessly with sin. And so I just want to consider this in three ways by answering three simple questions. And the first is this, how should we deal ruthlessly with sin? How? How do we do this? So let's look at the text. Starting with verse 42, no, excuse me, verse 43, we'll get to verse 42 in a bit. But uh, here in verse 43, we, we see Jesus um, speaking of something that is actually quite troubling, kind of disturbing. He seems to be addressing self-mutilation, right? So we look at the text, what does He say in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut, cut it off. Same thing with the foot in verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Same thing with verse 47, with the eye. If the eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Um, One example of self-mutilation in history that maybe you're familiar with, maybe one of the most famous, is that of Vincent van Gogh. Do you remember the story of this famous Dutch painter who in December of 1888, 
actually took a razor to his ear and cut it off, cut off part of his ear, and he wrapped it up in a little package and gave it to somebody. We think Van Gogh was in a kind of a delusional state at the time. He had some emotional problems. Is this what Jesus is calling us to do? Literally to be cutting off our body parts, and the answer to that you will be glad to know is no. Uh, Whenever we read the Bible, we need to consider the literary forms that are used. This is what we might call hyperbole. It's overstated, exaggerated language that is used to make a strong point. Similarly, we might say, um, you know, I've done this a million times, you know, or I waited for you for an eternity. Those are examples of hyperbole. We're not meant to take those literally. You probably didn't do it actually a million times, and no, you certainly weren't waiting for an eternity, but I get the point. You did it a lot of times, and you waited a long time. It's an overstatement to make a point. And we'll see other places in the Scriptures where Jesus will say things like, I am the door, or I am the vine. Now, nobody's going to think that Jesus is saying that He's an eight-foot-high piece of wood, right? That's a, it's metaphorical language. So it's very important when we read the Scriptures to understand it in terms of the literary forms and the genres that are being used. And so, Jesus here is resorting to hyperbole to make a point. So, what is the point? What is He saying? As He tells us to cut off our hands if it causes us to sin, cut off our feet if it causes us to sin, tear out our eyes. The point that Jesus is making here is that sin is so serious and so dangerous that no cost is too great in your fight against it. There is nothing that is so valuable that you should not give it up in your fight against sin and in your effort to destroy it like an enemy. You must attack sin in your life before it attacks you. You must kill sin in your life or it will kill you. And extreme danger always calls for extreme measures. That's Jesus' point. Sin is such a dangerous thing that we need to be radical and ruthless in the way we deal with it. It's kind of like if you had gangrene. You know what gangrene is? It's when the extremities or the the limbs, uh, tissue dies and bacteria starts to form. And with gangrene, the danger is that that bacteria will spread very quickly to other parts of the body and into your organs, and it can be fatal. And so the way you deal with gangrene is you amputate the limb. And the point that Jesus is making here is that that's how you ought to deal with sin. You amputate it. You cut off whatever it is that is the occasion or the channel through which you are led into sin. A guy named John Owen, who's written extensively on this issue, says this, we should therefore fight against sin and be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even when there is the least suspicion. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing, and always tempting. It doesn't give up on you. It doesn't declare a truce. It doesn't go on vacation. It doesn't get sleepy. Sin doesn't go away. It's always acting, and we are in trouble if we are not always mortifying. That's a word that means putting to death, stamping out. 
I think uh, the examples that Jesus is using here are actually fairly instructive for us in the kinds of sin that He is talking about. We might think of um, the hand as representing what we do, the foot as representing where we go, and the eye as representing what we view. And so, if any of these are the occasion or the opportunity for you to sin, Jesus' exhortation is to cut it off. Now, the good news here, friends, is that this is not something we're just called to do on our own, that when you become a Christian, not only are your sins forgiven, but the Holy Spirit is given to you, and you're given a unique, special, extraordinary power to engage in this battle. As Paul says in Romans 6, sin will not have dominion over you. You are not under the law, but you're under grace. So it might seem overwhelming to fight sin in this way, but the Spirit of God lives in you to give you the power to achieve success in this battle. So, what, what are some examples? How, how might this look in this battle against sin? Well, some few things that are probably fairly easy, obvious examples, but for instance, let's say um, you like to meet with some friends at a sports bar, and you get together there every month or so, and you gather, and the game's on, and you're having a good time, and uh, your friends like to drink, and when they drink, you like to drink, and uh, you're there for a few hours, and you find that pretty much every time you go out with these people, you drink a little too much, and you just come back a little inebriated. And you tell yourself, yeah, I probably drank too much. Um, I won't do it again next time. Well, you go to the next time and you meet with your friends and the same thing happens. You're just caught up in the moment. And you just begin to conclude that this is not good for me. I love my friends and I want to be with them, but this is an occasion that leads me to sin. Therefore, I have got to cut it off. I've got to tell my friends, look, I'd love to meet with you, but let's go to Bob Evans next time. <laughs> Let's not go to the sports bar. Don't walk into the place that is an occasion for you to sin. A more obvious example, I think, would be the cell phone, the smartphone, and the way that the smartphone provides so much opportunity for temptation and for us to look at impure images. If that's an occasion for you to sin, you ought to get rid of your smartphone. Now, how are you going to function in a world that is so dependent on the smartphone? That is indeed a challenge, but better for you to live life without a smartphone than to go to hell with a smartphone, is what Jesus would say. There are flip phones. There are other ways to deal with it, but if this is the occasion for you to sin on a repeated basis, it's a, it's a problem for you. You've got to cut it off. Or another example, maybe at work, there is just a person of the opposite sex. You're a married person, and um, you have a lot of alone time with this person, and you just sense that it's getting a little too emotionally connected, and you're having thoughts you shouldn't have, and maybe some things have happened that shouldn't have happened. You've got to cut that off. You've got to stop that. You've got to tell that person, we cannot be alone together anymore. You might say, well, that'll jeopardize my job. That might cause me to lose money. Well, same thing. Better that you lose money, better that you lose your job even, than that you go to hell with your job. That's what Jesus is saying. This is, this is radical. These are not 
compromising half measures that he is recommending here. He is exhorting us to demand unconditional surrender from our sin. Sinclair Ferguson says this, what is killing sin? It's the constant battle against sin which we fight daily, the refusal to allow the eye to wander, the mind to contemplate, the affections to run after anything which will draw us away from Christ. It is the deliberate rejection of any sinful thought, suggestion, desire, aspiration, deed, circumstance, or provocation. At the moment, we become conscious of its existence. That's dealing ruthlessly with sin. And that's the exhortation to, to all of us and what Jesus is commanding us to do. Well, let's look at the second thing here. What about the why? Why should we deal ruthlessly with sin? And there are two reasons. And the first is because of the example that it sets for others. So, let's back up here to verse 42 now where we get this pretty extreme warning. There's just a little passage just filled with warnings. Verse 42, it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This reference to the little ones might make us think of the child. Just a few verses earlier, verse 36, remember Jesus took the child in his arms and said, Whoever receives one like this receives me. And we mentioned that the child was representative of, uh, of the lowly, the outcast, the forgotten in society, probably not just referring to children alone. And I think that's the case here in verse 42, little ones. I don't think means necessarily just children, but, um, but those who are um, of, a, of a lower caste, those who are forgotten, those who are, who are overlooked, and perhaps in this context it refers to maybe, maybe younger Christians or more immature Christians, and it seems like what, uh, and the reason I say Christians is because it says here in the verse, the little ones who believe in me, so he's clearly talking about Christians, but perhaps new Christians, and what Jesus here is warning against is the example that we set for them. And so I think the example here is for those of us who are in positions of leadership in particular, pastors, elders, deacons, teachers, parents, to be careful about the example that we set for those who are watching us. If you're in a position of leadership, people are watching you. And what Jesus is saying here is be careful because He goes on to say here that it would be better for that person if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea, that would be better than that your example set somebody to sin. What is a millstone? Uh, it's, a, it's an enormous piece of cement uh, that was used in ancient times to grind flour, uh, or to, yeah, to, grain, to, to grind wheat into flour and to grind corn. And uh, some of these millstones were so heavy it took a a donkey to kind of pull it along and to move it. And so Jesus is giving a very explicit image here. Better that something that heavy tied around your neck and you thrown into the sea than that you cause somebody to sin. There's just a warning here about our example. Our example matters. People are watching. So that, that's one reason why you should deal ruthlessly with sin. But the other reason why, to get to our theme here, is because of the danger of going to hell. And so there are two groups that are mentioned here in this passage. If you'll 
kind of join with me in turning your eyes towards some of the details here. Uh, the one group are those who enter life, it says, in verses 43 and 45. Better to enter life, it says. Better for you to enter life crippled than uh, with two hands to go into hell. Better to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Um, uh, also, verse 47 talks about entering the kingdom of God. So, entering life, entering eternal life, entering the kingdom of God, both of those are just ways of talking about going to heaven. So, there's one group, those who are going to heaven, but then there's this other group here mentioned in verse 43, that is, those who go to hell. Verse 45, those who will be thrown into hell. Verse 47, again, thrown into hell. Two, two places, two destinations, two eternal states, heaven and hell. Hell is a place of darkness, punishment, pain, anguish. It's a place where people will go, people whose sins are not forgiven, the unredeemed, people who don't know God will go there. Now, notice here that this passage is not telling us something that is very popularly believed, which is that hell is only for people like Adolf Hitler and all of the mass murderers out there. The assumption is very often is just hell is where the really, really bad people go. But look what Jesus seems to be saying here. What, what, what He's saying here is that the people who are in hell are people who are not bothered by their sin. The people who go to hell are those who have never fought against their sin. The people who go to hell are people who are indifferent and happy with their sin and have no intention of repenting or turning away from it. That's, that's the difference. Now, we don't have time for just a full theology of hell today. We want to try to cover everything that we have here in this text, but there are two descriptions here about what hell is like. And the first one in verse 44 is this description of hell as an unquenchable fire. Now, we know what it's like to see fire burn uh, in this life, that fires always go out, right? I mean, if you ever tried to do a campfire or a bonfire, you build the fire, and if you just leave it alone, eventually it will die out. That's just what happens. But what Jesus is saying here is that the fire in hell is very different. It doesn't die out. It doesn't go away. It never stops. Now, whether Jesus is referring to fire here literally or not is a matter of opinion, and to think that this is literal does create some problems because hell is also called a place of darkness, so it's kind of hard to imagine if darkness and fire are literal, how can they both be there at the same time since light comes from fire? I don't know that we have to say this is literal, but one thing that Jesus is clearly saying is that this is a place of torment and anguish and sorrow, a place you don't want to be, and a place that never ends the unquenchable fire. But then he goes on, he uses another disturbing description in verse 48. He describes it as a place where the worm does not die. 
where the worm does not die. Now, the word for hell here is uh, the word Gehenna, and the word Gehenna was used in biblical times for this place down the slope off the southwest side of Jerusalem where there was this stinking garbage dump where there would have been a lot of worms and maggots, and so this is vivid imagery that people in Jesus' day would have understood. But the same point applies here. We, we, we've all seen worms and maggots before, but we know that eventually they, they die, they go away. But what Jesus clearly says here is that this is a place where the worm does not die. It never stops gnawing on its host. Now again, do we take that literally? I, I don't know, but at the very least we can tell that that is an awful experience a horrible thing to conceive, and a place that no one should be careless about as we think of it as a possible eternal destination. Some of the questions you might be having in your mind right now is, is you know, are you kidding me? Do, do, we, do we really have to believe this? I mean, haven't we moved on from this uh, primitive idea of a vengeful, wrathful God? Um, Do we have to believe in hell in this way? My question to you, if that's your question, I want to offer a question back to you. My question is this, do you think that Jesus believed in hell? I mean, I think we can safely assume that we want to believe what Jesus believes. The Son of God, the one who is perfect in all of His ways, the one who knows all things, no deceit was found on His mouth, Scriptures say, if Jesus believed in hell, we probably ought to believe in hell. Well, here's Jesus talking about hell. And this isn't the only place. I could show you several other examples. Here's Matthew 5.22. This is Jesus. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 10.28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 23.23. You serpents, you brood of vipers, Vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? So, does Jesus believe in hell? I think He does. And again, if He believes in hell, you should believe in hell, and I should believe in hell, and we should believe hell to the extent that He describes it for us in these passages. Friends, I know this is disturbing and kind of troubling, but I want to suggest that this is actually really good news, that you are all very blessed today because you're hearing about this warning. It is a good thing when you hear a warning about some danger ahead. You know, if you're driving your car down the road, you're anxious to get somewhere, and uh, you know there's a big bridge up ahead, and then you see this sign, one of those orange construction signs, and it says, bridge out you know, your first reaction to that might be a little bit frustration, you know, because, well, now you've got to change your route. You know, it's kind of an inconvenience. You've got to turn around. You have to adjust where you're going. You've got to go in a different direction. But I think deep down, you're really glad that that sign was there. And in fact, you'd be outraged if the sign wasn't there, and you drove off the side of the hill into the river into a fiery crash and lost your life. You're glad the warning is there. And that's what this is. It's, it's, it's a warning to us that we might turn around, take a different route, 
turn away from our sin and turn toward Jesus for salvation and escape from hell. It's a warning. This is an act of love. Jesus is saying, watch out. This is real. How disappointed would we be if we found out there was a hell and Jesus never told us? But He did tell us in many places. So thank God for that. So why should we deal ruthlessly with sin? Well, it's an, the example it sets for others, but also there's a danger of the reality of hell. So one last thing here is what results when we deal ruthlessly with sin? What results from this? Okay, so these last two verses here, as we finish up, they're kind of difficult. They're not really disturbing necessarily or troubling, but they're difficult to understand. Verses 49 and 50. So, let's just start with what we know here um, with these two verses. One thing we know is that we're talking about discipleship, right? We've already established that. That's the, that's the context, discipleship. And there are a couple of words here that we can take a look at and see what we know about these words. Consider the context, consider the meaning of these words. Maybe we can understand what's happening here. So, the two words here are fire and salt. And so, verse 49, Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now, part of what makes this confusing is I think Jesus is using fire here in a different way than He just used fire when He was describing hell. The fire of hell has more to do with punishment. The fire described here, I think, has more to do with purifying. Fire is a symbol of that which tests us and purifies us. So, if we think of 1 Peter 1, for instance, where it says, "...in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." So, fire is a testing for us. Fire seems to, um, to relate to the trials and the crises and the trouble that we experience in this life. So, we might say verse 49 means something like this, everyone will be salted with trials. Everyone will be salted with challenges and difficulties and setbacks and sorrows and concerns. But what does salted mean? So, that's the second word here. What does salt mean? Well, well, salt, you know, was used for preservation purposes in biblical times. We have refrigerators now. That's where we put our meat to keep it pure, but they didn't have refrigeration in biblical times. They used salt to preserve meat, so it was a preservative. But we also know that salt was, is used to give flavor to food and to season it and make it tasty. But there's another aspect here that we should consider that probably Jesus had in mind, and that is what went on in the temple during the sacrifices, as we are told in Leviticus 2, where it says this, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So, offerings brought to the temple, they, they were seasoned with, with salt. That was God's command. They were uh, given that preservation um, agent at that time. And so, I think what we can conclude from this is putting these two ideas together is that as you go through the fiery trials of life, God is seasoning you, salting you, maturing you, 
shaping you, making you more like Christ. I think that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 49. We're all going to be seasoned with trials. That's part of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. But then verse 50 goes on, and this metaphor, salt, continues. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? So what's he talking about here? He's saying, you know, if if salt loses its flavor, it's, it's worthless. It has departed from its purpose. It's lost its purpose. Maybe what helps us understand this a little better is to think of another passage that talks about salt that's probably more familiar to all of you in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. Jesus says this, you, referring to Christians, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So it's a similar idea here in Mark 9 and what Jesus says here in Matthew 5. The idea is that you and I, as disciples of Jesus, are the salt of the earth. That is, we are the ones who are called to preserve our culture from going rotten. That's our responsibility. And there's one last thing here that Jesus adds at the very end of verse 50, and be at peace with one another. So it's like, okay, what what does that have to do with anything? Well, if we could put all these pieces together, I think what Jesus is saying here is that there are two areas where it is very easy for us to sin. And one is when we face various trials and troubles, because it's very easy for us to grumble and complain. It's very easy for us to lose faith. It's very easy for us to distrust the goodness of God. Trials are a great temptation for us to sin. But another area where we have a great temptation to sin is in our relationships with people, where we get offended and we don't want to forgive and we resent, and we get filled with anger, and we separate from those we love and cherish. And so, I think what Jesus is saying is this, that if we deal ruthlessly with sin in these two areas in particular, as we're facing trials and as we're dealing with our personal relationships, we will be a salty witness to a dying world. That when the world sees Christians exercising faith and joy even in the midst of trials. And when the world sees Christians forgiving those who have hurt us and wounded us, when they see that, their attention is ours. They think, what is it that makes people live like that? Because I don't see anybody else who can go through trials with joy and who are so willing to forgive those who have offended them. So, What results when we deal ruthlessly with sin? A salty witness to the world. Nobody else outside the church is dealing ruthlessly with their sin. That's a special calling to you and me as God's people and His disciples. So, as we close here, just some questions to ask as we reflect on this entire passage. Uh, Am I too casual with sin in my life? Do I surrender to sin or do I call sin to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus? Am I too casual with sin? Are there things that I need to cut out of my life? Am I setting a good example for those who are watching me? Is my life seasoned with salt or has it lost its flavor in the way I interact with others in the world. But friends, the biggest question that I want to 
leave with you and impress upon you today as we think about the theme of this message is do you have assurance that you are going to escape the fires of hell? Can you say, I know I'm not going to that place? And you might say, well, how can I know that? And here's, here's how. Here's how you can know that. By turning from your sin and trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for you when He died on a cross where He took upon Himself the wrath that you and I deserve, and when He was raised from the dead in His glorious bodily resurrection. If that's your hope, if that's where you're leaning, if that's who you're looking to for salvation, then the assurance of the Scriptures are that you will not bear the wrath of God, that you will not go to hell, but you will enter into the kingdom of God and to eternal life. You you, you don't earn your way to heaven by being radical with sin. That's a responsibility of those who are already saved. I don't want you to misunderstand this. It doesn't matter how ruthless you are with sin. That's not what saves you. What saves you is the fact that Jesus was ruthless with your sin because He came into this world to die for it and, again, to take the punishment that you deserve. Believe in Him. I mean, no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how hard it is, no matter how many troubles you face, no matter how many sorrows you have, and I don't mean to minimize any of them, but if you know you're not going to hell, that is a reason to wake up rejoicing every single day. And that is a promise for all those who know Jesus as Savior. Let me just leave you here with John 5. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Our God, thank you so much for the warnings of your word. Lord, parts of your word are, are troubling and difficult, but God, we thank you that you have told us that this place exists. And not only that, but that you have told us how we can escape it, that there is a Savior, and that by simple trust in Him, we can know there is no condemnation for us. So thank you for that. And let it fill our hearts with joy as we look forward to entering into your kingdom fully when you come again. In Jesus' name, amen.